hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 13. I think this is going to be fun. Mark chapter 13. As you find your way to Mark, I want to read a familiar passage for you. We actually read it together last Sunday, but I think it sets the stage well for where we're headed in Mark 13 today. Listen together to the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8. He says this, For I consider the suffering of this present time, today's suffering, not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen, that's not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. One of my favorite passages of scripture. And I think I, I love it because it captures so much of what, what we know of the Christian life, what we experience of the Christian life. Isn't it true that as followers of Jesus, we see and feel this tension? See, we believe that there's a day coming when the sky's gonna split. All believers of all time will see Jesus coming in the clouds. We will be gathered together with him and we are going to enter eternal joy. No sorrow, like we just sang. No more pain, no more loss, no more tears. Made whole, glorified bodies, perfect forever. Sin, done away with. Just try to imagine this. Never tempted again. Whew. The psalmist says, in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. It's what we believe. And yet, there's tension because we aren't there yet. We still live in the world of sin and suffering. We live in a world of viruses and rampant wickedness. And let's be honest, church, it's not only the wickedness we see out there, it's the wickedness we experience in our own hearts. We feel the tension, don't we? between where we are now and what we believe is coming. It's what Paul describes so well in Romans 8, and that's why I love these verses. It gives words to what I feel, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly. Maybe that's your testimony. <laughs> Maybe this year you've particularly felt the groaning and you've struggled in the anticipation. I want to try to balance that this morning. This morning we have the joy of looking forward of looking to the day when faith will become sight. 
But before we jump into verse 24 of chapter 13, we're a long ways into this book. Let's try to remember some context. Let's try to remember what has got us to where we are. And I won't take time to tell the whole story again. But you should remember that this is a scene where Jesus, he's on the Mount of Olives. He's speaking to his disciples. And through the first 23 verses of this chapter, he's been preparing them for things to come. He's been setting expectations. Over the last two weeks, we've listened as Jesus has made some sobering announcements. He told his disciples, destruction is coming. Wars and rumors of wars are coming. Earthquakes, famines, they're coming. And he points to all the stuff and all that's kind of out there. But then he says, and know this for you, you are going to suffer. All those who follow me are going to suffer. Of course, these aren't the kinds of things the disciples wanted to hear. They were ready for a victorious king. They were ready for an established kingdom. But Jesus pulls back and he tells them, before the end comes, before that day of victory, there's going to be a time of tribulation. Now, we've also considered this, that nothing that God does is without a purpose. He points to a time of tribulation, but he also says this, that during this time of trouble and trials, he's going to spread the gospel to the nations. He's going to use this time to save and to sanctify his people. But the big idea over the last two weeks has been this. Before the end comes, from a human perspective, things will go from bad to worse. He's setting expectations. He's telling his disciples about things to come. And through the course of that announcement, we see that it's more than an announcement. It's a time of instruction. What's he doing? He's telling his disciples, be ready. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Be on guard. Endure. Commands for them. Commands for us today. But thankfully, we know that the time of suffering, the time of tribulation has an end. There is a day coming when Jesus will return to save his people, and he's going to make all things right. This morning, we come to the part of the chapter where he makes that announcement. If you've been with us for the past two weeks, there should be a particular release as we get to this point. My prayer for us this morning is that God would use his word to give us hope. That he would make us a people who, although we groan inwardly, we are waiting eagerly, enduring with patient hope. It's my prayer for us, that he would make us that kind of people. With that in mind, let's go to our text. Mark chapter 13, we're going to read verses 24 to 31. I will note that the passage actually goes to verse 37. We're going to pause at 31 and pick up um, that, that second half next week. Hear the word of God. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And Jesus will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree... Learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This morning, we should rejoice as we consider that God's word is true and that everything said here will come to pass. Now, I think I should tell you before we jump in that as we go, if I look off balance, it's because I feel like I'm, I am doing a bit of a balancing act this morning. I don't think there's anything more exciting than looking to the return of Christ. It should give us hope. It should propel us to godliness. It should encourage our witness. But at the same time, if I'm going to serve you well, then I can't gloss over the fact that there are aspects of this passage, again, that are hard. Hard for me and hard for you who are smarter than me, probably. Like I've said over the last two weeks, Mark 13 is a difficult chapter and we aren't out of the woods yet. So as we go, I want to herald the good news. And there's lots in this passage that we are certain of. There's also some passages, parts that make us scratch our heads. And I want to point those out for you. Not to cause doubt, but just to be honest. So let's herald what we know is true. And let's ask questions about the parts that are difficult. Again, the most important things are crystal clear. And any difficulty we have with the text, that's not God's fault. That's ours. We have work still to do. But my hope, even as we get into a few patches of weeds this morning, is this. That this passage would be like cold water on a hot day. If your soul is heavy or callous, and this should be a sweet comfort. If you're struggling with sin or temptation, this should give you courage for the fight. If you don't feel at home in this world, this passage is a reminder. We're not home yet. If you love life and everything is great, man, I'm glad for that. The best is yet to come. So we consider verses 5 to 23. We've slogged over the past two weeks through times of pain and suffering and persecution. Warning and admonition. And then we get to the first word of verse 24. What is it, church? But. It's a good word. He's announced tribulation, suffering, and pain. And then he says this, but. There's a lot of good buts in the Bible. You can cut that out and use it however you want. Verse 24, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will shake. And then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He's described the tribulation, and now he announces the end. Tribulation will cease. And then he begins to describe something that, that bends and stretches our imagination. Have you ever stayed up late? Maybe you got up really early to go out and, into the dark and to watch a, a meteor storm? Maybe to go out and watch an eclipse of the moon. Was it last year when we all stood out in our driveways and watched the moon go dark? Or maybe you've went and you got some of those crazy glasses so that you could look at the sun 
during a solar eclipse. What Jesus describes blows all that out of the water. He describes all of these phenomena at once and on steroids. The sun going dark, the moon going dark, stars shooting through the sky. Things that we normally see as stable and unchanging are shaken. What would cause something like that? He's announcing his coming. The thing that will change everything. But maybe, maybe this is worth recognizing that Jesus isn't the first to talk about these cosmic phenomena. He's actually quoting Old Testament scripture because, see, the, the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord. They announced this first. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Isaiah chapter 13. See if this sounds familiar to what we just read. Isaiah 13 verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of arrogance and lay low the pompous right pride of the ruthless. Isaiah announced this kind of cosmic phenomenon, the judgment of God coming, and Joel says something similar. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So, do you hear how the words, the descriptions Jesus is using, they've been used before. But Jesus is further announcing what's already been announced. It's like he's saying to his disciples, because they would have known these maybe better than us. They knew these announcements. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, remember what the prophet said? That's coming. It's still ahead. The prophets foretold this day. And maybe you notice this, that when the prophets spoke about that day, they emphasized judgment. That's part of it. Now, in our passage, Jesus emphasizes the other side. He emphasizes the salvation that's coming on that day. That day, to be clear, although it's not in Mark 13, it's a, it brings two things, doesn't it? Salvation and judgment. The sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, the stars start flying through the sky and I will let you decide over lunch if these cosmic phenomena are literal or whether Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Either way, I think we could all agree, he's announcing an event that changes everything, that changes the course of the world and brings this age to a close and ushers in the age to come. And I don't think there's anything metaphorical about verse 26. I'll debate with you about 25. 26, this is for real. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, before we kind of chop this up and look at the different pieces and parts of it, I want to give you permission, maybe even encouragement. Maybe we should have Stephen come and help us. Can we encourage you to use your imagination for a little bit? This is a day that is coming and that is described and that we will participate in. 
And I think we're robbing ourselves if we don't slow down and imagine that glory that's being described here. Now let me walk through the verse and help shape your imagination, okay? The first thing to recognize is this is not a secret event. It's not something that only a few people will see. What's described here and in other parts of Scripture is something that will be seen by everyone. And I can't tell you how it's going to work. But this is what the Bible says. Jesus is going to come on the clouds. And it's implied here that everyone will see him, but Revelation says it clearly. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those that pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let your imagination have some room. A day is coming when Jesus will break through the sky and everyone will see him. Right now, there's some of us who have the joy of knowing him and seeing him. And we have the responsibility of inviting others to know and to see him. A day is coming when all will see. What will they see? They'll see the Son of Man, Jesus, in the flesh and with the glory of God. Now, let me give you something to chew on. If you were with us, um, was it last year we walked through on Wednesday evenings, we talked about the Trinity. Remember we talked about the nature of Jesus? And what we talked about, what we considered from the Scriptures is that there was a time, see, Jesus has always existed, eternally God, but not always in the flesh. See, something changed 2,000 years ago when God the Son came and took on flesh. We call it the incarnation. He took on a body. He became not only fully God, but also fully man. Now consider this, that even today, that hasn't changed. See, when he left earth, he didn't leave his humanity here. Hebrews helps us with this, doesn't it? We have this mediator who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He remains fully God and fully man. And when he returns at his second coming, we will see him physically. And, and we know this really clearly because of Acts chapter 1. Do you remember this scene? Acts chapter 1. Again, same scene, Mount of Olives. Jesus with his disciples. This time it's 40 days after his resurrection. And he's speaking to them, and this is where he gives them the Great Commission. He tells them, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you with power, and you will be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the world. And then we read this, starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When Jesus had said these things, as his disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Love this. If you never laugh when you're reading the Bible, you're not reading it closely enough. Men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? Right? You picture it, these 12 guys just staring at the sky. Two more guys walk up and say, what are you looking at? Oh, and they knew. Look at verse 11. These two men said to his disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return in the same way he left, on the clouds in the flesh. And all will see him. And yet, it will be different, won't it? Because see, the first time he came, he came fully God, fully man, in the flesh. And a lot of people didn't know who he was. It's going to be different, isn't it? We see that here. Everyone's going to see him, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The first time he came, he was fully God, he was fully man, but his, his glory was veiled. The veil's coming off. All the world's going to see him in his glory and in his power. And once again, through this whole passage, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. The, the stars and the sun and the moon part, he's quoting Isaiah, he's quoting Joel. And now here he's quoting the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Listen to this. Daniel says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's like we get a vision of what happens in heaven just before he breaks through the sky. The Son of Man comes to the Father and he gives him the kingdom, power and glory. It emphasizes the deity of Christ and helps us consider that when he comes again in his glory, all will see his glory and he will rule and reign. Now, I was reading this week, and someone helped me to, to pull back and to consider this. How ironic it is that on Wednesday, just before he's arrested, tried, and killed, remember the announcements he's been making? He's been talking about how he's going to suffer, he's going to die. And now he sits on the Mount of Olives and says, one day it's going to be different, Right? They're about to see him endure such pain and suffering. But he points them forward to hope. Now, to be sure, we need Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of that week, don't we? Because if not for the death, if not for the resurrection, we don't have the hope at his coming. But because he died, because he rose again, if we confess our sins, if we believe in him, we know that when he comes, I'll say it again, this day is coming, this isn't fantasy. This is real life. He's going to come, and all those who have been forgiven of their sins by trusting in the work that he did on the cross, we're going to see him, be gathered to him. Paul speaks of anticipation when he says in Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See the deity of Christ there? We're waiting for the glory of God, Jesus. With that in mind, just maybe you would consider this. Where does your mind go when you don't have anything else to think about? Are you prone to daydreaming? Dreaming about that perfect day, that perfect vacation, that perfect relationship? 
Or maybe, maybe you're not the kind of person that daydreams about the good things, but when your mind has nowhere else to go, you shift to worry and to fear and worst case scenarios. Let me suggest this, that we would all be served well, that when we have nothing else to think about, to spend time thinking about what's ahead, to imagine the things that are described here. The reality is there's nothing on earth that compares to what's ahead, and we can dream about the next vacation. That's okay at points. But how much more helpful to look to the day that's coming and the salvation it brings. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. See, the things of this world are fleeting. The time we have is short. And everything should be seen through the lens of what's to come. There's a lot of hope there, isn't it? There's a lot we don't know. Of this we can be sure. Salvation is coming for those who believe. So take heart. We've talked about his return. And then we see our involvement in the story. Mark 13, verse 27, And he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. Again, we have something that's hard to visualize and hard to understand logically. The engineers in the room have a hard time with this. People from every corner of the world gathered together. How does that happen? I don't know. We're told that it happens. And it's not only the gathering of all those who are alive at his coming. It's a gathering of all those living and dead who have placed their faith in Christ. It's what we read together in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me just read it again in this context. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have already passed, so that you grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's important. It's all hinges on that. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This should sound familiar. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Theology. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Aren't you glad we aren't left to wonder? This life comes with all kinds of ups and downs, twists and turns, but God tells us so much. He's told us a day was coming when God will return for his people. All who believe, who have been saved through the work of Christ, will be joined together with him. This is, if you're in Christ, this is your story. This is your future. This is our hope. Let me say again. This seems, maybe for you, fuzzy or otherworldly. Fantastical. 
but it's real and it should change the way we live today. Christ is coming and we will be with him. So think about it. The scriptures are clear. This is something we should anticipate and it should change us. That gathering of people, living and dead, we're told that when we're all together, it's going to be an incredibly beautifully diverse group of people. Consider what Revelation says. Revelation 7 verse 9. This is the vision of John. He says, I look and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, that's a day to think about. I'm thankful for the small representation we have each Sunday when we come together and sing Worthy is the Lamb. But oh, what a day that'll be when we with the multitudes of those whom Christ has saved through his blood will sing together. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. So we read texts like that, we should be in awe and wonder. If you're tempted today, and, and maybe you are, this wouldn't be unusual, Maybe you're tempted today to discouragement. Find encouragement in this. We have a great future. If you're suffering today, find comfort in this. Eternal joy is ahead. If you're tempted to idleness or complacency, remember this. There are those who need to hear of this hope. It's worth pausing to remember that this is hope for those who believe, but this is judgment for those who don't. So as we look to that coming day, it should encourage us to speak and to be faithful in the work that God has called us to. We could spend a lot more time unpacking this description of his return, but I do want to at least get us into that next section. It's where he starts talking about the when. If you look back to the beginning of the chapter, remember that Jesus announced the destruction of the temple, and this was the question that started this whole conversation. His disciples said, when will this happen? Which was a loaded question because for them, when they heard Jesus say that the temple is going to be destroyed, they equated the destruction of the temple with the end of time. So they asked Jesus, important question, when is this going to happen? And then Jesus gives this teaching that answers both the immediate question and the long-term question. And that's been the challenge of weaving through Mark chapter 13 is deciphering the different layers. We've seen that he served them so that they weren't taken off guard by what they faced. And he also serves all Christians of all time as he points forward to the things at the end of time. They asked a good question, when will these things take place? And So after describing the signs and describing his coming, he goes back to this question of timing. And he starts with a parable. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So they're here on the Mount of Olives, a place that has a lot of fig trees. He uses what's around him as an illustration. 
A fig tree is not an evergreen. It's a tree that loses its leaves. So for months during the winter, it's bare. I don't know what my favorite season is, but spring's in my top four. I love that time when it's been nothing but brown. And then you see that little bit of green. You know what I do? I run to the garage, start tuning up my lawnmower, getting that fertilizer ready. You see those buds and you know what? It's coming. It's coming. Spring is coming. Summer is coming. And this is the picture Jesus is using. He brings together everything he said up to this point. We've had... 5 to 23, talking about tribulation, talking about this time of suffering, talking about this time of winter. And then he says this, when you see the signs, I think everything he described in 5 to 23 are the signs. These are the buds. This is the green. When you see the signs, you know that the coming of Christ is near. And then he explains the metaphor in the next verse. He says, so when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Easy enough, right? Well, when we start bringing all the other truths of Scripture together, we realize that these verses are a little bit hard to understand. The main question is, what are these things? He says, when these things happen, you know that he's near. I've already given you my take. I think it's the things he describes in 5 to 23 the destruction of the temple, the abomination of desolation, and what it foreshadows. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, suffering of the people of God. Jesus says, when you see these things, know that my coming is near. And yet, what we said last week is that to a certain extent, some of these things have happened and some of them are foreshadowing other things. I think this is an announcement more than timing it's an announcement to be ready be watchful i do believe he could come at any time then we get verse 30 these are the weeds but let's consider it together truly jesus says truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place so we've said that some of these events are past and some are future. And then Jesus says, all this will take place before this generation passes. So we have a question. Who's the generation? And it's a question that has been debated for generations. I think the most natural reading is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, your generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But if we say that, we're suggesting, or are we, that the tribulation has passed, that everything of 5 to 23 has been fulfilled, which takes us back to last week, that these signs were first and partially fulfilled in the time of the disciples and serve as shadows of final and complete fulfillment. So I do believe he's telling his disciples, get ready. These things are coming. And I think he's saying to us, get ready. These things are coming. You can talk over lunch about your opinion over the generations. The truth of the passage is crystal clear. Christ is coming again. Before he comes, there will be trouble and there will be trials. Don't be surprised. Oh, church, get ready. He's coming. 
We'll talk more next week about this idea of wakefulness. Let me just read for you a preview of next week, preview of things to come. Verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. I'm going to love preaching this because I get to tell you over and over, wake up. Wake up. This is important though, isn't it? Christ is coming. Stay awake. We're prone to idleness, complacency. We have work to do, don't we? Oh, that we would be found faithful. There's a lot more we could talk about trying to untangle some of those things. Let me wrap up, and I want to give you four things before we close. Four things that an awareness of the coming of Christ should do for us. He's coming. What do we do with that? This one's not on my list. Worship him. Praise him. Honor him. Salvation is coming. Add that to your list. I might think of some more along the way. Stay tuned. Our awareness of the coming of Christ, this is number one on the list. Our awareness of the coming of Christ should encourage us to be faithful to him. Again, we're tempted to be idle or complacent. We can be complacent in our fight against sin. We can be complacent in our service of others. We can be complacent in our sense of urgency to do the things that God has called us to do. We cannot be idle. Look to the coming of Christ and allow it to encourage you. He's coming. Be found faithful. Peter, one of the disciples who was with Jesus when he gave this teaching, he writes in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. And then he says this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Because some would say, well, if he's coming, why doesn't he come already? Oh, his patience is our salvation. And let's use the time he's given us to be faithful. Number two, our awareness of the coming of Christ should provide hope in times of suffering. This is where we started this morning, Romans chapter 8. Life is full of hardships, but the joy we have as Christians is knowing that one day Christ will return and all will be made right. So in your suffering, hang on. There's coming a day. 
Paul says it this way, speaking of the work God's doing in us and the change we're experiencing, he says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, these are transient. The things that are unseen, eternal. Christ is coming, and when he comes, we will experience joy. So hold on. And I know for some of you that's harder than for others. Number three, our awareness of the coming of Christ should give us comfort in times of death. Something we've already mentioned, death is an enemy. The death of someone we love is probably the greatest pain we can experience in this life. And yet, because of Christ and the hope of resurrection, we can grieve with hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, we've read it now twice. I'm thankful for what Paul tells us here. That there will be a day when graves were open and all who have died in Christ will rise to new life. It will always be true, death brings pain and grief, but this will be true too. In Christ, there's resurrection. Number four, our awareness of the coming of Christ should motivate our witness. This is very similar to number one, that we'd be found faithful but it's worth saying separately. When we look to the day of Christ, we know two things are going to happen when he returns. Salvation for those who believe and judgment for those who don't. So as we look to that day, not only should we rejoice in our salvation, but we should also tremble knowing that all who don't know him will face his wrath. The coming of Christ should remind us that we have a calling. We have a commission. Man, God forbid we come and celebrate this stuff together every week, but never tell anyone else about it. We read in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When we think about the return of Christ, our minds should not only go to our hope, but it should motivate us to faithfully proclaim the hope of salvation. And oh, that God would have many to call to himself on that day because of our witness. Christ is coming. We must be faithful. And we can know he's coming because his words are sure. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. When we think about things that are unchangeable and unshakable, you know what I think of? The sun, the moon, the ground under my feet. Jesus says, here's what's more sure, more certain, more lasting than all those things. My word. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah. And he's using very similar words that I use every Sunday after we read the word of God together. Isaiah chapter 40. A voice says cry and I said what shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. See, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of our Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word is sure, Christ's word is sure, and he has said he's coming again. And while we might not understand the timing or even all the signs, we should eagerly anticipate his return and we should desire to be found faithful. Let me close with the words of Paul. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting, waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you want to know what we should be doing as we wait eagerly, Titus chapter 2. Oh, that we would be found faithful. He is coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.